Hello, this is Patrick Haleen, Sheriff of Hampshire County. If you're a college student interested in learning about the field of criminal justice, the Hampshire Sheriff's Office would like to talk to you about our summer intern program. Your internship will matter, not just to the clients we serve, but also to the people of Hampshire County who rely on us to protect public health and safety. Interested in making a difference? Please visit our website, HampshireSheriffs.com, and submit an application online or call 413-584-5911 and ask for our HR department. This show may contain subject matters not suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. The views expressed by guests of this show do not necessarily reflect those of WHMP. To be a unifying person, you must have acceptance. It is a social responsibility for those who are better educated to give back some to the society in whatever service they can help. Tan Cheng Buck. Hi, I'm Lisa Riley, and each week we're here to share stories that shine a light on not only justice-involved individuals, or underdogs in the game of life, but their struggles, their successes, and also the powerful resources and opportunities available for those who are hustling to carve a new path and prove that failure isn't final. So unlock your future, rewrite your story. This is The Hustler Files. Welcome, everyone, to this week's The Hustler Files. My guest today takes his passion for his career to an entirely new level in that beyond his day job as director of education at the nonprofit Cambridge Credit Counseling, he volunteers his time to be a change maker with justice-involved individuals, teaching financial education every week, not only inside the Western Mass Regional Women's Correctional Center in Chicopee, but also working with the Federal Reentry Program in Bridgeport, New Haven, and Hartford, Connecticut. Welcome, Marty Lynch, to The Hustler Files. Thanks for having me today. Uh, pleasure to be here. Well, why don't we get started at the beginning and tell us a little bit about how you got into the financial literacy education world. Well, both of my parents were in education. My dad was an elementary school principal in Springfield for 30 years. Uh, my mom was a high school teacher for more than 20 years. Uh, I also taught in the high school here, but uh, through uh, some family medical emergencies needed to leave and be able to work and make my own schedule. Um, and Cambridge offered that opportunity. So uh, it's been a great fit. And uh, I still get to teach, but I get to teach when and where I want. And what areas of education do you provide beyond the justice-involved individuals that we're going to talk about today? Well, it's, it's unfortunate. Uh, but it makes it convenient for us in that just about any population needs financial literacy education. So I may go see high school students in the morning and veterans at night. Uh, I can see folks in a correctional facility one day, and I could see retirees or uh, teachers the next. Everybody lacks financial literacy in this country. When we give entrance quizzes, the average score is a failure. Wow, that's yeah. really scary. Yeah. Um, I guess I'm not taking that test anymore. It certainly is, and that's, <laughs> that's true for teachers, too. I mean, we provide counseling to uh, the MTA, for the New York State Union of Teachers, and for the Connecticut Education Association, and they're no different from any other adults. Financial literacy is something that is really lacking in this country. We understand what financial literacy is in a little bit of a deeper dive. What are the categories that you know, sort of are encompassed under the financial literacy umbrella? 
Well, we, we like people to understand how to budget. That's the basic. Uh, at Cambridge, we have thousands of clients from all income levels. The one thing they have in common is they don't have a budget. So budgeting is always the centerpiece. Uh, we need them to understand how to get their credit reports and how to read them. Uh, getting them is one step. Understanding what you're looking at is something else beyond that. Uh, we want them to understand how scoring works. Credit scoring is a mystery in this country. Just like reporting is, uh, the, the two have a lot of myths uh, and a lot of misunderstandings, so we try to clear that up. I'll help folks understand how to deal with accounts that have slipped into collections, uh, how to deal with medical debt, identity theft. I mean, there's a long laundry list that I'll offer to our hosts, our education hosts, to choose from. So if you think your population needs to hear about collection activities, that's what I'll talk about. So let's jump in on the justice-involved world that you help out with. And I want to start with the federal uh, reentry because that's sort of a shorter conversation. But it's very interesting that you're involved at the federal level as well as at the state level. So when we were speaking offline a couple weeks ago and you were telling me about this reentry program, uh, it's with the federal reentry out of Bridgeport, New Haven and Hartford, Connecticut. Walk me through what that looks like when you go to the you're going to the court system, correct? Yeah, originally we met in uh, the courtroom itself. Uh, the first judge who reached out, I don't recall exactly how they had heard of us, but uh, we made the drive down and lo and behold, the educational session, the classroom session was held in their courtroom and it wasn't just you know, the 15 or so uh, parolees that were under the judge's direction. It was also uh, courthouse staff. Uh, there were a number of those folks in there too. Uh, so that they would understand what their parolees were going through, and some of them needed it, needed the instruction themselves. But it was very interesting because their system is so labor-intensive for the judge, it made me wonder, like, how do they duplicate this in other uh, jurisdictions? Because the, the parolees submit uh, journals to the judge on a regular basis, and you, you can tell that the judge has read them and is on – uh, you know, a first-name basis, an intimate basis with each of the um, those parolees, knows what's going on in their lives, knows that they had a job interview this week and asks about it, and what, you know, if their family is going through a particularly tough situation, knows to ask about it. So it really asks a lot of the, the justices who are involved. Uh, that was the most impressive thing, because as soon as I had my first experience with them, I was telling my, my colleagues and my family, like, wow, you'd never believe this program I just saw. It really would work, but it demands so much of the people involved. Uh, it's got to be exhausting on their end. I mean, my piece is easy. I come in and I'll do my financial literacy pieces however much they want, uh, and then I'll wait for the next crew of parolees to come along. But on their end, it just it probably doesn't stop for months. So these are formerly incarcerated who are on parole. I just want to make sure I set the table appropriately for our listeners. So these are formerly incarcerated who are on parole who have to make a monthly appearance in the courtroom to do a check-in. Is that sort That's, of the coverage? That was my understanding at the outset. But I have encountered a few individuals who are on their way in. Uh, and in fact, my most intensive interaction or ongoing interaction was with a gentleman who was on his way into the system. So I met with him through email and phone calls and changes of budgeting documents, you name it, over months 
but he was only sentenced a month ago. What would be the reason? I, I guess I can understand on the, the parolee side. So the judge wants to make sure that these people that he is watching over and has put back out on the street, that they are following a dignified path of redemption and recovery and reentry and doing the right thing so they don't recidivate, correct? Mm-hmm. Okay, so I can get that, and I, I think it's wonderful that this court has interfaced with the and brought you into interface with not only the parolees but the judge himself or herself and the the court people who are working with these parolees. So that sounds like a wonderful program, and and what a great way for success at the end of of the system when you know people are really involved with what the success is that they're working towards but having to go to the court when someone is just hasn't even been sentenced yet what was the mindset behind that well i i don't know fully but i i presume it's something i encounter occasionally through the hammond county system is that somebody uh, can't make bail and they want to keep that person busy. They want to. There's no point in waiting. You might as well start them out uh, in education programs. And because this individual had committed uh, some financial crimes and uh, needed to make significant restitution, I guess maybe they thought he'd be a fit for this uh, because he needed. He had a lot of digging out to do, and still does. But uh, it was a good time to start. Do you have a set curriculum that you bring into this particular program with the federal court and like or do you do they just tell you we need you to touch on X, Y, and Z and that's what you bring the day you come? We we do work it out in advance. I'll I'll lay out a dozen topics I can talk about and I'll let it be like a laundry list you can pick and and then I'll be ready on the day. And do you find after you've sat with the parolees and gone through this laundry list of items that, you know, were appropriate for that group. Do you see sort of a light bulb go off? Do do, do you actually, can you see that you've made a difference from being there? You can see it. These are some of the best audiences I'll ever have because uh, they're very motivated to, they know they've bottomed out. They want to get better. They want to improve. And they know that improving the way they handle what money they have is a way to avoid recidivism. So, they're really good cl- good audiences. Uh, and if I say, you know, everybody's going to get your credit reports and the next time we talk, you know, you're going to have something, you're going to have questions, they'll do it. That's awesome. All right, we have to take a quick break. Marty, please stick around for a little bit longer. And listeners, don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Don't touch that dial. Employment, housing, identifying documents, addiction treatment, education, veteran services, and legal advocacy. They're all part of what we offer at the all-inclusive Support Services Center of the Hamden County Sheriff's Office. We provide services to justice-involved individuals as well as the general public with the goal of improving community safety and the quality of life across Western Massachusetts. Don't let life's challenges lock you up. Be a step ahead. For a hand up, stop by 736 State Street in Springfield or visit us at hcsdma.org. Hello, this is Patrick Kaling, the Sheriff of Hampshire County. If you're looking for a career helping people, the Hampshire Sheriff's Office is hiring in many of our departments. We take great pride in our commitment to returning the men in our care to their communities in better health than when they arrived. Your work will matter, not just to the clients we serve, but also to the people of Hampshire County who rely on us to protect public health and safety. If you're interested in making a difference, please visit the Mass Careers website for more information. 
Welcome back to this week's The Hustler Files. If you're just joining us, we're here today with Marty Lynch, a financial educator who takes his social responsibility quite seriously by offering financial education to formerly incarcerated and incarcerated persons uh, who are behind the wall. And one of those groups are the women at the women's jail, which is under the watch of the Hampden County Sheriff's Department. So we just came off a conversation, Marty, talking about the federal and you going into the court system with parolees. But I want to dig in a little bit more on the Western Mass Regional Women's Correctional Center. How long have you been working with them on financial literacy? Uh, We actually started meeting with them when they were back in the Ludlow facility. So the women's jail that we have today on uh, Center Street in Chicopee, uh, the far end of Main Street in Springfield, really, for me, goes back to September of 07 when that facility opened. And we've been there ever since. I have a lot of passion in the social justice system, but maybe a little bit more so on the women's side, maybe because I'm a woman. And also because when I was living in California for a short time, I spent a day at the women's correctional facility there in Corona, California. And I got a chance to speak to a lot of these women and chat with them and learn about their backgrounds. And many were victims themselves. And they were incarcerated in some instances pretty unfairly. But I'm so thrilled that you're going inside the facility and you do this on a weekly basis? Weekly, two hours a week. Two hours a week. Okay. Is it the same day every week? Uh, Right now it's Thursday mornings. But, you know, in the many years, in the 16 years that we've been going there, sometimes it was three hours on a Friday, sometimes an hour on Thursday afternoon. It's whatever uh, their schedule can accommodate. We'll fill the gap. Uh, But right now it's two hours. That's a good length because uh, a lot of the issues are complicated. Uh, it's not just me delivering you know, four lessons on four topics. We do have an open discussion if they want about what their particular situation involves, because you're right, a lot of, a lot of women uh, have been either in the dark about their family's finances because their spouse has always handled it, or more likely they feel overwhelmed because everything was dumped on them and they didn't have the tools to handle it. Uh, now they're incarcerated, and what do they do? That's a really good point to make um, because not all generations of people, especially women growing up, were trained on how to handle the money in the family because our past generations typically were handled by the the head of the household who back in the day was m- most likely male. So are these women in a reentry transitional program on their way out, or are you meeting with women who might still have long-term sentences ahead of them? Both. Uh, some are yet to be, uh, yet to have their day in court, and some have already been sentenced and are uh, usually approaching the end of their sentence. And do you bring one, again, one set of curriculum that suits everybody for that two hours on Thursday morning, or are you working with each woman individually to target whatever her needs are in that moment? Well, I need to bring them up to speed on on the fundamentals of personal finance, which means I'll bring uh, handouts for five or six topics, and then we'll see what they know and what they don't know. Mostly they don't know uh, more than just a few facts about any uh, element of personal finance. They may know that they referred that things stay in their credit report for seven years, but that's all they know about credit reporting. Uh, or they may know that what their FICO score is, but they don't know their 
14 other versions of their FICO score. So whatever topics they pick, I can go a lot deeper than what they, um, what they know coming in. And that's a good way to, to start because they'll realize that, oh, I only knew a little bit about this. There's a lot more to it. And they begin to get invested in it and, and participate. Uh, but again, like the reentry courts, the uh, women who participate at, at the Springfield uh, Center are great audiences. They really are what you want as an educator because they're not bashful. They admit what they don't know. They take notes. Uh, they're good. And they, some of them do get some sort of a stipend for work they do within the prison. So they are, some of them are earning money, correct? Uh, in the federal system, that can be true. I don't know how true that is in the sheriff's department system. Well, I know it is on the male side because I was just went through a vocational tour with them a couple weeks ago. So I, I'm guessing it probably is on, on the women's side. From what I was reading, they also have vocational training. I haven't had contact with the... Uh, with male inmates at, at the Ludlow facility since COVID started. But I knew that with folks who earned income through the system, uh, that they would also have taxes to pay. So we arranged with a, a really nice professor at Western New England University to bring the inmates out of the facility over to Western New England and help them do their taxes because they did. Uh, there was a filing due uh, for those folks. They had income. And that worked out great too. But it's, you know, that's one where... People in the system have to think, you know, these guys are, there's no reason for them not to file. They need to file. They may have money coming back. They may owe, whatever it is, uh, we need to help them stay in the system, keep thinking that they're part of the economic system in this country. You don't want to feel like an outsider there. No, of course you don't. And at some point, most of them will be released back out into society. And it's important that they do know how to balance their checkbook, quote unquote, or understand their FICO score or know how to apply for a loan. When you're in with them, are you doing just paper um, when you say handouts or do you actually, do they have access to online at all? There is no online access, unfortunately, uh, for any of the groups I've been with who were incarcerated. Uh, they do have a computer lab, but as far as I know, they only use it for resume preparation. They aren't; they don't have real internet access. So, so that was a problem during the pandemic. We couldn't do webinars like we do for every other population. Uh, I have to give them thumb drives. They are just not confident, and they don't have the staff to just separately watch them while they're in the computer lab. They would need me to come too, and during COVID, that just wasn't possible. What's interesting is that we all live in this digital world on the outside and behind the wall for security reasons, you know, for incarcerated people don't have access to that. But being able to be taught how to do your banking online is so much easier than balancing a checkbook. And I'm just speaking from personal experience. I mean, I just growing up could not grasp that. And getting into online banking, I check my balance every morning. I make sure money's where it's supposed to be, where bills are paid. Because, And I think about back in the day that, you know, watching my mother sit at the kitchen table with her cup of coffee and trying to balance out her checkbook. And so that must be difficult. For these women because they're going to come back into a world, they're going to re-enter a world where, you know, digital online banking is is what they're going to do, but you have no way to train them in that. Well, most are new to the system, or relatively new to the system when I encounter them. So they came in at a point where they already knew how to do that. They'll talk about checking their balances on their phone and doing their banking by phone, 
Uh, I don't meet too many who are unbanked, which is not something I anticipated. I thought it would be the other way. But most of the folks had regular bank accounts. I meet homeowners, uh, which is interesting. I meet younger people who thought, well, they'll never own a home. And then they find that they're sitting across from a woman who had one. That's fascinating. Do you ever get into any of the personal stories behind why they're incarcerated? I don't go into, you know, where you picked up for a drug offense or for murder, although I know that's happened too. Uh, uh, that's not part of why I'm there, and I don't want to seem like I'm judging them because, you know, you committed a worse crime than she did. That's not anything we talk about. And how many women do you typically sit with on Thursday mornings? How many or interact with? Uh, right now, it's about 10 or 12 in a class. Uh, it depends on their intake uh, at the facility. But uh, in the past, we've had classes of 20. I mean, it, it really depends on how they're running week to week and month to month. Um, sometimes I'll see the same group three times. Sometimes I'll see one group for two hours and that's it. Next week, it'll be an entirely new crew. And so when you know that maybe you have a group that's getting ready to go into reentry, is there a process where you would be informed like, okay, within 60 days there, this group's getting out and we need to cover these topics because they, they need to apply for housing or they need to fill out an application for a loan or they need to open a new bank account. And because I'm sure that after being incarcerated, there are questions that can probably be very intimidating on some of the information that they need to access once they're released. I'll typically ask as they're coming into class what the release date is. So I know what we're up against, you know, is somebody going out in two weeks? Uh, so we make sure we want to touch on collections for that person. Um, if the whole group is has still got a couple of months to go, then you know we can take our time a little bit. But collections is the biggest thing because the one thing I can assume pretty safely about a group uh, that let's say they've been uh, incarcerated for eighteen months. Well, I know that they're going to deal with collectors when they get out unless they had somebody outside paying all their bills. So. Collections is going to be managing collection accounts is going to be uh, really important for them. They can't overpromise. Uh, they do need to understand uh, the threat of a lawsuit, uh, which is the collector's power. If they own the debt, they have, they bought the power to sue. Uh, but uh, there's circumstances where a debt may be past the, the statute of limitations. They need to be aware of when that is a factor and that they should confirm that with an attorney. All those things that that you know conceptually aren't difficult. We just need to confirm that they know. This is such a great conversation, and I'm so grateful that you stopped by today so we could talk about this um, because education in any form within a behind-the-wall situation, I think, just creates more value. And the last thing we want is these individuals to recidivate and end up back where they are. We want them to have successful, meaningful lives moving on. I have one final question for you, and if you could keep it short for me, that would be great because we're running out of time as always. But um, I'm a believer that we all have life assignments, and sometimes we have multiple ones. Uh, sometimes we only have one in life, but some people have more than one. But what do you believe maybe your life assignment is or has been? That's a good question. Uh, with my family's history, it has to be education. My my parents were both educators. My grandmother and her sister were uh, teachers and principals. My grandfather was the treasurer of the bank in North Adams. So maybe that 
uh, some of his DNA leaked into my life path, but uh, but helping people understand and and uh, perform better in this world is is a good calling if that's what it is. Well, I congratulate you and I commend you for your work because I think you make a difference every day, not just with incarcerated or formerly incarcerated. I know you do it with the students and veterans, and I think that's a great life assignment. And briefly, if anybody is interested in volunteering to assist with these type of programs behind the wall at a county jail near them, what are the steps they could take to get into the process? Is there is it as easy as just picking up the phone and calling the the head of the prison or jail? There's a program uh, coordinator at just about every facility I've been to, and they'll help you understand how the process works at their facility. There'll be background checks. There'll be you know reviews of the, of the curriculum or the program you expect or you're uh, hoping to run with that, with their population. Uh, but they're really friendly and they're they're anxious to help you help um, their residents. Uh, cope with what is a difficult stretch. I mean, you have to assume that when somebody goes behind the wall, they've just experienced the worst thing that's going to happen to them, you hope. Um, And anything that can make their life easier and prevent them from going back inside benefits us all. It's not just benefiting the the parolee that you help, but it helps the community too because that's a person who needed to be separated from us for a while, but we're happy to have them back. They've learned their lesson. They're a regular citizen performing well now that they're out. I mean, that's our goal. And that's the correctional system's goal, too. Marty, thank you so much. Uh, We have to take another short break. Again, Marty, thank you for your time and being a force of good in the financial education realm. And we'll be right back in a minute to wrap up this week with The Hustler Files. So sit tight. More to come. The Hamden County Sheriff's Office is not your average law enforcement agency. Our correctional staff provide a firm but fair approach to corrections as we change countless lives for the better. In the community, Sheriff Nick Cochise's never-say-no philosophy has evolved the field of community policing, bridging the divide between residents and the unmet needs in our neighborhoods. If you want to help make the world a better place while earning a good salary with great health insurance, paid time off, and a pension, please visit hcsdma.org and click Join the Team to apply today. And today's final thoughts come from author and speaker Tom Peters. His book, In Search of Excellence, became a bestseller and must read for any aspiring leader as soon as it hit the shelves in 1982. His thoughts on four ways to obtain excellence in the modern world are, number one, care more than others think is wise. When we are fully invested in what we do, we care to the extremes. It almost always makes a difference. Number two, risk more than others think is safe. If we are unwilling to take chances and believe in ourselves, how can we ever become excellent? Number three, dream more than others think is practical. The world will get out of the way for people who know where they're going. Dreaming is how we begin our pathway to excellence. And lastly, number four, expect more than others think is possible. When we constantly raise our level and challenge expectations, we bring those around us to another level. Excellence requires commitment, not contentment. And that's a wrap for today. It is my hope that the stories we share each week release limiting beliefs, create impactful conversations, and activate change. A huge weekly thank you to our producer, Leah, and of course, our guests and advertisers for their support. You can find this show and all of our shows on the whmp.com podcast page and also on any of your favorite podcast sites.
If you'd like to reach out with any questions or comments, you can email me at lisa at whmp.com. Have a wonderful week ahead. And remember, don't be ashamed of your story. It will inspire others. See you next week right here on The Hustler Files. (laughs) 